Hi, and welcome to Just the GP. You're joined by your usual co-hosts, Beck, Ash, and Charlotte. Hi. And today we've got Tamara Warby. We are joining you again from GP19, where we've all had a really lovely week. And I think what we'll do to start off with is get Tamara to talk to us about, well, really why she was invited to come along. And who she is. Exactly, and who she is. And then we'll talk about what our highlights of GP19 have been. So, Tamara, who are you? Besides <laughs> <laughs> just a GP. <laughs> so, my background was uh, in research. I started out doing science and doing PhD, went into medicine, and then just sort of progressed from there as a junior doctor, rocking all over the world, I call it, um, through Ireland and emerged different emergency departments, and then ended up... Now I'm settled on the Gold Coast and working obviously as a GP there, but also just doing a couple of side things like most people do in GP, you know, teaching, um, working from home and uh, working on the project, which is why I've been invited to GP19, which is the work that I do on planetary health. It's called the Declaration Calling for the Family Doctors of the World to Act on Planetary Health. And that's something I developed with the Harvard Planetary Health Alliance, as well as uh, Wonka, and have sent it out to all the member organisations in the world, including Australia, which of course is RACGP. They mutually supported the document, and that's how I ended up then applying to speak at GP19. I have so many questions already. (laughs) 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 But I think we'll start, we'll come back, and we'll go through our highlight of the week. So, I foolishly gave two highlights in the previous podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And I shouldn't have done that. (laughs) So I'm going to use a different highlight again. So I think the the next highlight of GP19 has been also a future leader one probably, and that is about meeting new people and different people and really seeing what their passions are and what their interests are like yours. And just what the vast differences of things people do with GP and that's just incredible where they take it and what they do with it. Mm. And how skilled our colleagues are. Yeah. And how, the amazing work that people do. And you're just like, wow, oh, wow. It's really tempting to say, I want to do that and I want to do yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. It's actually also really I can't nice do all do. of that. Yeah. No, but they, and they, he, yeah. you wouldn't be able to do it as good as they do. Yeah, exactly. It's very inspiring. Mm. Mm. My highlight. So this year was my first year ever presenting at the conference. And so I would say that that was a highlight because it was a different experience for me coming as a presenter rather than as an experience or or as someone who has to attend a whole bunch of meetings. So I haven't had to to do that many meetings. And can I say I've heard great feedback about your your stuff, Ash, so congratulations. Thanks, Charlotte. Yeah, yeah. So, highlight for me, I will call out actually something outside of GP19 because we are still in the same week as on Saturday, I was privileged to to lead the New South Wales ACT Faculty Strategic Planning Day. Mm. And we had a full room of really engaged GPs from across New South Wales and ACT, all there excited really excited about 
what we can be doing as GPs in, at, who are members of the RSUGB going forward, embracing the vision document that is officially being launched this afternoon from the RSEGP and if people haven't sort of seen that or looked at it, please go and have a look. It's actually a really great document, easy to read and from my perspective inspiring in the current environment about what it is that we can aspire to be and do and work towards as general practitioners for our patients, which is about, of course, always improving healthcare for Australians. So yes, a little bit like Ash, my first time presenting at the conference, which was obviously a highlight in itself, but as an aside to that, then doing the climate change workshop afterwards, and there was a lady sitting next to me and just hearing the feedback of someone saying, you know, this is a completely different area to me. I wanted to see something in the conference that wasn't just the usual diabetes or the usual, you know, menopause or whatever it was. And just to learn something completely new was really special for her. And that reminded me of my own aha moment when I first heard about planetary health and how suddenly everything made sense in terms of what we do to the earth and how it's coming back to affect our health. And that was really special because one of the reasons I wanted to develop the declaration in the first place was to bring planetary health to the attention of family doctors who didn't know about it otherwise. So that was really nice. So are you on the specific interest? Yes. I actually started the work through the Environmental Impacts on General Practice Specific Interest Group um, with Janie Maxwell and all of those who were already working in the area of climate change. And planetary health is a little bit broader than just climate change, so I ended up going a little bit outside of that scope and thinking more global in the end. But you've also had a major input into the RACGP's statement on climate change. Yes, because we set up the Share GP as part of that, so because I wanted to have a platform where we could, for example, like Google Docs, create uh, documents where people in different regions can definitely contribute to it. And Rosie was instrumental in leading that particular part of it. And when we put that group together, it really took off a little bit. Yeah, well done. It's been great work. The last 12 months has been... A bit more trajectory, yeah, Yeah. a little bit more uh, exponential, as they say. Yeah. So I guess my first question coming all the way back is, you've said a few buzzwords already. (laughs) So what, what do you mean by planetary health? Sure. So planetary health is looking, it's an emerging research field, and it looks at the way that human-caused disruptions to the Earth's natural support systems loop back to negatively affect or otherwise human health. As a research field, it looks at threats to sustainability of civilization, as well as threats to human health and the disruptions in natural support systems. So it's uh, there's a lot of different areas within planetary health, but it can basically be thought of as whatever we're doing to our natural systems that support us is negatively affecting our health. So essentially, signposting, getting the implications of our actions at a whole world level. At a whole world level. From a health perspective only? From a health and natural systems um, and 
the trends in, for example, you know, global urbanisation and things like that, that mm. are going to be coming back to affect uh, human health. For example, mm. an example of this, so in the advertiser this morning, that's the South Australian <laughs> newspaper, right? Somewhere I was looking through there and uh, there was a, an article on how South Australia doesn't have enough bees to pollinate the almond farms to sustain the almond industry. And that's an example of planetary health because one of the facts in our uh, declaration is that the loss of pollinator systems, which is an effect of climate change, for example, bees die in the heat, as well as biodiversity, which is chopping down all the forests. And then you lose that pollinator effect, which is reducing nutrients in crops as well as threatening about 577 billion US dollars worth of crops per year in survival. And then of course, that has the loop on effect of not enough crops to feed people, which we're expanding our population, etc. So they were talking about where they're gonna ship bees in and put bees in, in this, this article yeah, this morning. And how did you get interested in this? Where did this all start for you? Yeah, I had, I, I forget what, conference, it was some conference where a Professor Kerry Arabina was speaking as like a plenary at the start and she mentioned about planetary health and I was like, what is this planetary health? And when I Googled into it and did a, little, a bit more research, it was like, it, as I said, it made sense. It just, to me, is, I've always loved nature and my dad pointed out when I was doing the slides for this talk that I did a lecture at when I was 11 years old called Our Dying Oceans. <laughs> so I think I've always been interested, I've always been talking about it, but I never put, as a doctor, I never put that back into like going, oh, I've had, you know, people who are coming in affected by heat illness, you have asthmatics affected by longer uh, pollen seasons, which is part of uh, rising temperatures <clears throat> and so even the data that we know about kind of how you create a community and the impact that that has on physical health you know when we look at the environmental planning of a town or town exactly planning right. in a town and how that affects the ability for people to be able to be active and safe when they're in, when they are active that I imagine is kind of in that sphere as well. Yeah, and you know, you start to notice things. Like I was driving to work and I live in a part of the Gold Coast up the North End where everything is getting, bushland is just getting raised for, and you know, bulldozed for putting up schools and estates and things like that. And I had my first ever patient who'd come in and said, she thought that her health of the her son was being affected because all the trees were being cut down. And I just started thinking, now I drive to work and I look, you know, are there trees, is there shade for people to even walk their kids to school? Um, because, you know, obesity is obviously affected by not being active, but if we're promoting co-benefits, which are considered environmental as well as physical benefits together, then you start to look at, do you have the town planning infrastructure in place to deal with that? Because who wants to walk to school in February? like? No, no one. Sun. Yeah, no especially one. in the Gold Coast. <laughs> especially in the Gold Coast where there's no um, 
yeah. daylight savings and it's, yeah. and it's light at four o'clock in the morning. I so. know, I love, love the birds. By the t- <laughs> <laughs> so by the time you get to, what, eight o'clock or yeah. when kids are walking to school, yeah. the UV rate is actually quite high. Right, and yeah. actually, and this is, that just reminded me as well, when I was 17, I had lobbied my school to put like an outdoor shade covered area because I was always talking about us all getting skin cancer and that was the days where everyone was getting frightened about the ozone layer and stuff like that so it's kind of always come I suppose it has come full a little bit more full circle for me yeah it's interesting though uh, just as a sideways reflection I do a whole lot of work in the Philippines and just even though just thinking about the heat and the whatever and the impact that has on health because for the same thing they don't exercise at all really because it's just too hot all the time and so there's sort of implications for people all around the world as to how weather and the climate change I mean for them too it's just these constant storms or something you know I'm struck by it's one population which I work with that you do something and then weather comes and takes you two steps back and then you sort of pick up the pieces and you go ahead and we're we're protected that from that in Australia, mm-hmm. apart from our droughts and stuff, which we see it as a sort of this long-term thing, but we don't tend to have this sort of being attacked by the weather as a, and not attacked by the weather in this brutal attack, go away, attack, go away. And because it's this sort of subtle, insidious, you know, like the drought is three or four years, so people just get, it's a bit like, can I say, the, the weight the obesity epidemic, where we are becoming acclimatised to that's what we see around us, so we don't see it as being the enemy that it is, and so we just go, oh, well, that's Australia, we have drought. As a, as a North Queenslander growing up in the cyclone areas, we were definitely constantly attacked. As a southerner, I just don't relate. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were sheltering on the ground, and often, yeah. uh, even you know, in the last couple of years with Cyclone Debbie, still my my parents and my brother still had to have roofs replaced, and still won't get around to a new one until the next one hits. Um, so, and I also worked through the Grantham Ipswich floods in the Ipswich Emergency Department, and that was when you were really seeing those waves of different ways. For example, that you don't think of in disaster planning, people who were dependent on, say, home oxygen, then had power cut off, and then you were having the failures in the COPD and all of and diabetics who ran out of insulin because all the pharmacies were flooded. And I was just sort of that all of that was kind of coming in. And we kind of get smashed in Queensland. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting and you do get protected. And I think that's one of the problems for Australia is that we we don't we're not good enough at sharing those stories across that have meaning for us in a way to understand it. And it is that sort of personal experience of it. But it is interesting that you brought up that disaster thing because I was talking to Penny Burns, who's an expert on disaster. Friend of Just a GP podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> and she, you know, she's amazing in terms of just thinking about the way that we manage disaster. And she was sort of one of the first people that made me actually appreciate that the climate change planetary health thing was inextricably linked with how we as doctors think about disaster management. Because I was more, I'd again done this sort of island of disaster management stuff is here, 
climate change is here and not go, ah, actually, Charlotte, there's a whole lot of them. And there's, um, we're at our workshop yesterday, um, because we were talking about, you know, this is, it sounds like it's a really big global thing, it's a little bit too overwhelming, how am I supposed to act locally as a GP, etc. And Dr. Tim Senior mentioned about the uh, climatechangeinaustralia.gov.au website. And on there, you can go in and put your local region in and you can see what the evidence is of the certain disasters, for example, bushfires, etc., that will affect your region. And I met a GP yesterday, you were talking about sharing stories, who I think he was from, he was close to Inverloch and their whole coast is getting washed away. And he showed me a picture of, the, it looks like the Surf Life Saving Club, not the little stand, the whole club is just gonna go into the water because their coastal erosion is that bad. And uh, the mangroves and things that should normally be protecting that have been lost. So the same as where my mum lives. She lives oh, on really? the central coast oh. um, uh, on a beach called McMaster's Beach, Copacabana, and the same issues there for right. the... But, but because of the last, so I think it was 100 to 300 million people globally because of loss of coastal degradation will not be protected from storms, storm surges and other issues. They will be vulnerable to that in terms of health effects. So how do we maintain hope? Because <laughs> from my perspective, like I really care about this a lot and I've started to think more broadly about it and I was talking to a, a colleague today about the guy who started Patagonia, the company of Entrepreneur's autobiography, because he actually spoke about how to be an ethical manufacturing company in the midst of like trying to make a living capitalism, producing stuff, but also being like keeping in mind the impact of what fibre that you use on the environment, you know. So they were very careful. He says that they were very careful about what fibres they put in the clothing. And when you start to get more and more information about all the different things that Mm -hmm. can affect our natural environment and therefore the effect that it can have on on our health going forth and something in particular that I'm interested in but don't know how to approach is the increase in um, blueberry farms around my area used to be a very big banana growing community and now it's a lot of blueberry farmers and we actually the blueberry farmers sell all their blueberries to uh, Asia and Australia actually only keeps very few and Asia buys them really expensive off us so it's big business like quite big business and so a lot of people locally have bought blueberry farms but they haven't done a lot of the environmental planning about the runoff of all of the issues and so we're seeing changes in terms of the water quality for our local aquatic systems as well and so our local marine environment people are kind of going ah now water quality is going worse because of this you know growth in farming really close to where our waterways are and you, you can get really overwhelmed with the amount of stuff that you go oh my god there's so much stuff and there's so much stuff going wrong and I don't know what to do and it's almost like well everything's gonna be crap anyway so it just won't matter so how do we keep hope there's uh, a term you've probably heard of eco-anxiety yeah well no I haven't but okay. I feel like <laughs> 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 just, just yeah. it. So, and there's also ecological grief which yeah. um, is perhaps more experienced by indigenous populations yes. in the loss of the fact that their land is like losing a relative yeah but so <clears throat> there's a one of the doctors that I work with in Canada Dr Courtney Howard 
and she speaks about, and I don't know the specifics of it, I, it's been a while since I looked and I have needed to because writing this talk and driving around I'm like, stop cutting down trees, <laughs> you know, so I get, you, you, you really do want to experience more of that hopeful side. So she speaks a bit about eco-anxiety, so you know, if you look at some of her articles perhaps, and I will too, but I think maintaining hope about is about keeping momentum and it's about celebrating small wins. Yeah. So along the way of all of this, I had, you know, obviously managing a team that is a very international team and I made a point, especially as a leader, to make sure that we celebrated small wins. So, hey guys, we got this accepted here, or we've got this, or let's keep track of the media interest. I make sure I loop that back in and I'm saying to people, what you're doing is making a difference. So, and those little steps, even if it's just putting together a document or it's our team translating it, hey guys, these guys, you've you've translated it. This is a, this is a milestone. In terms of the big stuff, I think the fact that it's become a global movement and there's obviously uh, Extinction Rebellion and other things, Greta Thunberg, you know, all of these things happening, that, that brings hope back into the equation. And also the next generation, because if you think, like I said, for me, 30 years ago I gave my talk on Our Dying Oceans what are the kids today going to be doing in 30 years? So I suppose that provides some hope as well. But it is hard, it is overwhelming, and it, it is hard to kind of keep your head above that water, and especially when you're feeling like everything is just going down the drain. <laughs> and you've got to try and think, no, we're all human, we're enjoying you know, life, we just have to live now sustainably. Mm. And that's a shift in culture that's a shift in values that's because we've been taking everything for granted and mortgaging that against the health of future generations i like that concept like we're mortgaged we're mortgaging our future yeah yeah and we've overborrowed and it's going to come back (laughs) (laughs) just like whatever it was gnc yeah it's hard though isn't it it's a bit like you know i find it i find it hard to know how to sometimes deal with my absolute grief over how my forebears have done things mm. versus and then not being able to t- you know saying look we we need to understand that we didn't understand the consequences mm. of what we were doing yes. but now we do and therefore we need to do this pivotal turn and not do too much of this sort of blame or whatever, which I sort of think is what happens with politicians, is that, that part of them being so obstinate about change is that they can't cope with the fact that it might say we've done things wrong, rather than going, oh gosh, now we understand the implications and so therefore we do actually have to take a pivotal change in our approach to doing things and this means X, Y and Z and how do we implement that in a way that is economically sustainable as well as being climate change sustainable and that you know there's obviously going to be compromises somewhere it's a bit like you know as a, I myself have been tried to be as responsible as I can for I don't know how long you know in our house I mean we everything about our house 
is, you know, we collect our own water, we've got our solar panels, we don't need to use anything off the grid, we recycle everything. But what gets me is that this message that, which is actually not a difficult thing to do, is not something that I'm seeing happening in my cohort around me. And I see a lot of people who say it, but don't actually do it on that personal front. And I sort of feel like, come on guys, let's have that personal challenge. We're all needing to do a different approach to what, about what your we practice, do. practice, Charlotte? Oh yeah, no, well, we were actually one of the um, beacon practices for being yeah, yeah. green. So what can you talk um, us through what that looks like? What did that look like? Okay, so what that looked like. So I did that oh quite a few years ago, and I was plastered across Medical Observer as a you know a green GP, and I still have those the photos that they used for me for quite some time about it. What did it mean? Was that we did a big audit of what was happening in our practice. Problem with practices, of course, is that we are still so dependent upon paper that there's an awful lot yeah. that we we just couldn't not do. So what we, you had to take a pragmatic approach. So it was about, we went through and completely changed all of our lighting. We went through and changed all of our policies around turning on and off equipment at night time and, you know, computers and the use of, you know, what we were doing. We changed our telephone system to something that was, you know, completely different in terms of power outage. We looked at being able to get solar panels on our roof, but we couldn't because of the cost and the, you know, renting it from the organisation. All of the doctors got upskilled in trying to understand the, the, the minimal use of paper rather than otherwise, and we tried to decrease the paper crossing our desk. Our biggest enemy, as I said, is the system, and the healthcare mm. system is not a sort of a friendly. So we, we did, I would like to think what we could do best but again it's like the recycling of things the the battles that I fought was you know like the how do you recycle food and stuff so for instance we have in our staff room I we bring in fresh food and vegetables for our staff to be able to access but there's still a lot of people who do takeaway stuff and there's still the whole sort of turnover of things that shouldn't necessarily happen over which although you can as a practice owner, so, you know, I'd rather that we do it this way, still there are things we can improve. And over time, we're actually about to do another audit to bring us right back down. And we've, because we've been able to now bring in an SMS text for results, we are now going to be banning, well, not banning, but well, we've already seriously limited the amount of letters that go out on the basis that we have permission now from our patients to email or SMS text and that that is the mechanism of communication that we do according to which sort of protocol I'm hanging out for my medical software to enable us to email the patient through the system rather than not. Um, and so at the moment we are limited to the SMSs for the clinical sort of side, which is you have to try and keep them small for cost. But those are the sorts of things we've done. And, you know, I completely appreciate that really they probably make very little difference. But again, it's about the, trying to set the standard. But as I said, what I find disappointed in is how hard it has been to actually bring people with me. Right. There's an interesting guy who talks about how to do that. And he talks about like the ratios of 
you know, bad stuff versus good stuff that you get for people to, to do climate sorts of, to act on climate change and other things. And I, I think the ratio is like four to one, something like this. He looked at, he, he's done a lot of studies and he looked at what brings people along and it is their neighbours. It is like neighbours putting up solar and then you're like, and then you're like, okay, well, I'm going to put up solar and it's that flow on effect. Well, that has happened in yeah. my street, can I say? Yeah. Since we put our solar panels on, um, it's taken a few years, but we've, I think we've now got four or five that have put right. them up. So and, there you go. Maybe you know, is... the hotel I'm staying at at the moment has a way. So oh, all of so their cool. products are like carbon neutral. Yeah. I took pictures and you can put a sign outside your door saying no cleaning and it shows you how much carbon you've credit you've saved. Um, I offset came coming down here obviously and um, and the other thing we're looking at doing is things like um, virtual conferences for example so you know rather than people adding that travel mm. but it is kind of a flow on effect of learning more yourself and then teaching other people but then doing more and you can, there's all sorts of ways to act you're talking about food reclaiming and so there's a really interesting statistic that I learned during all of this work that one third of all food produced for human use is wasted, goes to landfill. If food waste was an emitter of carbon itself, it would be only behind China and USA. So there's like huge levels, obviously, of production, of farming, of more yield per land, which comes back to your blueberry farms and, you know, the use of water and things like that, sustainable farming. But then there's personal levels where you look at, am I just shopping for what I need? Am I not throwing it away? Am I buying local so I'm not, um, you know, using up all the transport or, or the food wastage that comes with things that travel that further distance? Yes, so did you check where your raspberries came from? <laughs> yes, yeah, so there's definitely so many different levels of action on big levels and as well as small. And the other thing about healthcare sector itself being as 7% of carbon emissions coming from healthcare sector, there are there are websites available where you can go on there and get like a greening pack. You can sign up to be a green practice like you've talked about and they can support you through that. And then there's other ways to do it, which for example is you know, if you're in touch with, say, your local health minister, like I have been in Queensland, and he asked me to speak, which I have not done, I will say, at uh, to hospitals about their sustainability. So mm. there's lots of different ways you can... I think Harvard put it like, use your voice, your choices and your votes. Um, I like to say learn more, teach more and do more. And I think there's just different... There's so many different levels that you can work on it. Well, certainly we need to lead by example in the first place. Exactly. And health professionals in their communities are usually... They are held to that standard. You know, they are the example setters. Do you go to a doctor who smokes? Would you take advice on not smoking from a smoking doctor? That sort of thing, you know. It's maybe... It's a bit of a double standard being held to higher account, but that's what health professionals are held to. So I think we do need to lead on it. It's certainly why we 
targeted the call to clinicians on planetary health, which is a separate article in the Lancet. Which actually aligns with the wellbeing thing, because I think right. we, we as doctors are calling our patients to be accountable to their wellbeing. We need to be accountable to our own wellbeing first, So, which goes with our whole thing about yeah. doctors have a doctor, have your one doctor, yes, be accountable, yes. look after your wellbeing, and then understand yes. that that will have big implications on being able to look after our yes. patients better. And I think we're all stewards of the earth, like taking that into more of the global planet as patient. We are all stewards of that. Yeah. You know, everything that we do, everything that we eat, everything, economies, livelihoods, water, food, all comes, and drugs. You know, 50% of all medications have come from discoveries in nature, and we're losing all of that from loss of biodiversity at a rate of about one drug per two years. So it's, you know, it's a big thing. Which goes back to the scary, so we need to take it away. (laughs) (laughs) Again, I would say in all um, things, it's about looking at what opportunities we have to make a difference and lead. I think there's some really challenging things that you've put there. Um, Such interesting But, you know, just like stuff where you thought separately, like for me, habitat protection, which I've always been passionate about, but I never put it into the human health framework. If doctors have that as a framework, then we're talking about, well, this is how it loops back to us. You know, rising sea levels are contaminating water supplies in nations that is creating gestational hypertension, for example, in pregnant women. So if you're advocating, okay, well, we don't want the sea levels to rise, it's melting snowpack, but that brings it back to that human health level where you're advocating for habitat protection, but for human health protection. And you know what that reminds me of is something I brought up in my ALM the other day about how the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people of Australia had that connection with the land and that the land supported them and they looked after the land and they knew the importance of our environment in terms of their own health and in terms of their communities and how their communities interacted with the land in terms of their own health and you know that's something that I think it brings some grief and loss like you said because of it was only a couple hundred years ago that the people living here you know, understood and were practicing in that sustainable way with their environment, but also hope from a dual perspective when I think about an opportunity, you know, how, um, how we could garner support from our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples to help in terms of action on, on planetary health for A hundred percent. All across the world, in terms of what we do to land, so land degradation, we've destroyed about 20% of the land's surface and made it useless. It's rendered useless. But always indigenous populations have done better in protecting their land so that they keep the soil fertile, they keep the biodiversity, they keep their forests with the water running, all of that stuff they've done much better in that in those areas although I don't know the specifics of it so you're exactly right we could do a lot to learn from those practices yeah and that that at least then does really give us hope Hope. and but it is about I think isn't it that not abusing something to the end it sort of goes back to one of my health mantras you know that a little bit of something might be good but a whole lot of it 
is it can be dangerous and it's the same sort of idea of you know just because farming this this particular bit of land gives me this doing it again and again and again and, again, and then making you know is not the good thing there's a word for that isn't it monocrops oh really yeah so there, there's that idea of having one crop only on one piece of land is not ideal in terms right. of farming sustainability. Yeah, 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 it's just the nitrogen, the nutrients, the right. giving back, the resting, the yes. breathing, that, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I think the other interesting thing when I think about hope in terms of Indigenous populations around the world is, you know, we know that there's, oh, at least my memory of understanding of research in this area is that there has been some data to suggest that when Aboriginal people in certain areas increase their connection with the land and living with or off the land, they actually had an improved diabetic control. And, you know, that connection with the land was was seen as very important in terms of helping to close the gap in certain areas. And so it creates this kind of dual opportunity there where it's actually bringing it back to a focus, particularly in Australia, on sustainability and connection with nature and connection with the land. Can I ask that thought too and think about, I'm really struck by a whole lot of the work on the gut biome and just the whole biome and I'm sure there has to be a relationship with how destroying your local environment affects then your your own biodiversity. And we know that the whole gut biodiversity actually is directly linked to diabetes Mm. and gestational diabetes and all sorts of things and downstream and from rivers where trees have been cut down kids get more gastro yeah. um yeah. you're talking about co-benefits and, and green that, that sort of like connections and that sort of thing is that the mental health benefits of mm. green spaces yes, have been proven totally. as well and yeah. for example in hospitals you know you heal better if you've got a window and you can see a tree and even if you've just got a picture of a tree it's the same healing benefit who knows why but well yeah. years ago they knew that they, they put people up to rehab in the mountains right. with the trees and the fresh air or down at the seaside yeah. you know how many stories do i read about people who were sent off to convalesce and it's always sent off to those spaces you know again we intrinsically know these things, yes. but we've lost that yes. in the busyness and overwhelmedly um, yes. uh, packed in life that we now lead. And the increasing urbanisation, yeah. which worsens the disconnection yeah. to nature. And the mindfulness. It's so funny that you brought this up because we, in our clinical supervision of the week, we spoke specifically about this because we were talking about, you know, the care of people who are requiring removal from the general community when they've got an acute mental health issue such as a acute psychosis that's making themselves at risk to themselves or other people. And so they need to be taken out of the general population. And in the past, the you know, the old kind of mental health places where they would go had these beautiful grounds and gardens and you know, you could be outside and Yeah, and now we have four walls that are painted white, <laughs> you know, no stimulation or con- like in Coffs Harbour we've only got concrete on the, you know, on the outside. So. Well, we had at our um, New South Wales faculty talk, we had this uh, well, town planner come and talk to us about, you know, mm. the importance of just city planning right. and, I, and that was as a result of a talk that I'd heard from uh, Copenhagen town planners and 
the benefits to health mm-hmm. through the rethinking of town dis- planning and design, which again it's goes to design. Oh, to that whole thing about you know the understanding of the importance of an environment that is pleasant to live in, that where you feel safe. So it's not just about it being safe; you have to feel safe and social connectedness. And oh, look, it all just goes sorts together. Of meetings is another avenue for doctors to again have a voice from a health perspective in something that you would never have thought of before, which is, you know, sustainable cities and things like that. Yes, absolutely. Tamara, can we quickly touch on what you've done in this space? Oh, yeah, that's important. (laughs) What do you want to know? Well, I know that you initially started this project as part of your Future Leaders last year. Yes. And yes. then the project kind of exploded to be much bigger than you had initially first planned. Um, can you just describe exactly what you've achieved in the past 18 months and why it's meaningful? Sure. So I didn't actually have the idea uh, for this project until about the end. Um, what I wanted to do, my initial idea was send a global memo on planetary health to the family doctors of the world. And so I approached the Planetary Health Alliance, who was, I thought of as being the experts in the area and knowing connections, and they had a great outreach officer who has just been fantastic. And um, I also contacted Wonka and became part of their environmental interest group as well, and then thought of putting the two together because then I could have the experts creating with the distribution. Mm. So that put us all in a global position of creating the document, which eventually became the declaration. And that was launched in March of this year. Then as part of that, it was sent to the 131 countries with the 118 member organizations of Wonka. And then I facilitated different groups who wanted to do translations. So Portuguese, French, Italian, German, Spanish and then started coordinating media involvement because I was trying to think how will I measure success and the two ways were going to be media exposure as well as questions or people wanting to be involved and then reciprocal support and reciprocal support to me then meant that those places or um, organisations would have accountability. So if they were supporting a document that said you should be acting on this, then they themselves would therefore have to um, have further action. Um, So yeah, it's just been publication in Lancet was a broader call to action. So that involved about 32 other organisations that was led by Planetary Health Alliance, um, which included World Federation of public health organisations and so that just sort of then was a springboard into these kinds of things. So for example, the Spanish uh, conference, Family Doctor Conference had a talk on it. Uh, My Brazilian colleague, Professor Enrique, he did a talk about it. So it just, I wanted a, a central talking point document where you could say it had broad global effects because I cross-referenced it to the World Health Organization actions and problems of climate change in all the different countries I could uh, access and then tried to make it globally applicable but it's still quite robust and research-based 
and then um, those places now as for example the Caribbean um, and Canada mm -hmm. have done mutual support and therefore their colleges have promoted declaration to their members have then gone further to either act on say for example divestment or act on policies, act in local or national well-being and climate change policy making and go from there. So it's I'm just sort of sitting here reflecting. It's a bit like what you did was you stood at the side of the pool, you threw in a fairly big-sized pebble, and yeah. now you've got all the ripple effects mm -hmm. to which you can actually really add value. Mm. Um, That's really cool. Yeah. 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 Yes, it's definitely, it was a really big pebble. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's right. I was going to say a rock. rock. I was going to say a rock, except that I actually think it's more refined than a rock than it actually sure. was. Yeah. Like, um, because it was so spec carefully crafted, therefore I like the, the, the sort of the vision of the... I wanted the uniformity and mm. the message. Mm -hmm. It was, even declaration, the word was chosen because of the ease mm. of um, translation into French and Spanish and... But there was no French, I think, word for eco-anxiety and there were things <laughs> that we had to kind of work around with that. But it means that you have a talking point. It means we got articles in the BMJ, in the Canadian, Brazilian, Spanish, family doctor cool. um, journals. And then that means the word gets out. And then I had, you know, people even from Nigeria t on Twitter contacting me about what they could do and Kenya who is amazing they do a lot in Kenya um, often the smaller countries who mm. have less of the imprint they will have more impact but they're doing more as well and they're super keen so that's nice. Mm. I actually feel like we could invite you back again and talk <laughs> about this for a significant longer time but I think we probably need to wrap this up and move on to our pearl of the week. I'm going to jump in first because you've actually just reminded me talking about the bees. Our um, local fire station runs the local Native Bee Society for our local area and they do this really cool local promotion where you can actually purchase a native bee hive and they're significantly different to, 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 to European to, bees. Yeah, to yep. Italian bees in that they're stingless. So they're actually quite child-friendly and they're significantly smaller. So they're quite an achievable thing for local community members to be able to resource at a low cost and actually be something fun and exciting and meaningful to do. So I guess my pearl is that there are some really interesting local initiatives happening everywhere and it's really great fun to be involved and bring your kids, the next generation, along with you um, and all of your family and see what's happening locally just to get involved. So I'm going to have some environmental tips and then I'm going to steal a resource from you. <laughs> so I'll start with the environmental tips. So something that my husband and I decided to do about three months ago is we realised that a huge amount of an environmental impact comes from the meat industry and so we didn't want to go completely vegetarian for, you know, a few different reasons. So we decided to do what we call flexi pescatarianism. Where because we live by the sea, this is not my this is not my <laughs> words. I shall do a shout out to my friends who helped create this word for us and them because they do it as well. 
Um, we live by the, beach, the sea, so we have access. We can do um, pole line fishing, and my my husband's dad is keen on pole and line fishing, so we will only eat the fish that he catches, but we will eat fish. And then at home, we primarily eat vegetarian. We don't eat meat at home, but then we're flexible in terms of if we go out to people's houses or we go out to dinner or, you know, that's where we can get our meat. So we thought instead of saying we need to have only two to three meat dishes a week mm. and therefore ending up with six, we decided we eat vegetarian at home and then only eat meat if we're out and about. And we've also, as part of that, and we we order this um, box from one of our local areas where they, they it's um, like um, organically and sustainably farmed vegetables where they drop off a box every fortnight and we just cook through the box. And we compost all our own vegetables and we've just got a worm farm. So that's my little environmental tips of, you know, how to kind of eat healthy at the same time as be environmentally friendly. And then my resource of the week is I was just Googling before trying to find these websites you were talking about that help practices to go green. I couldn't find any just by Googling it. So I wanted to steal the resource from you and perhaps you could email us afterwards and we'll put it in the show notes because that's what I would like my resource of the week to be about. And you've then stolen mine because <laughs> I wanted to say that, you know, like certainly what we did when we went green in the first place was that we got green certification and we, we then dropped off from that just because we didn't feel like we needed to continue to prove we were, even though that was what we were continuing to do. But I think I might challenge us to go back to it. It's a little bit expensive on one front, which is one of the reasons we chose not to. But I think that maybe there is a benefit at the moment in leading again about doing it. That would be a great opportunity for the college or even PHNs to be giving advice oh, and, you know, like packages about, yes. you know. I did that uh, yeah. because I approached the college about linking it to accreditation. Yeah. I think it's going to be quite a while off, but I think it's going to be the way that things We could go. still you offer... You could still offer that this some, is how you do it and for yeah. the, the, like an opt-in yeah. model until yeah. it's opt-out. Still offer yeah. a green certificate. Yeah. So okay, so that'll be me and oh, over to you, Tamara. I'm sorry, Charlotte. <laughs> Not at all. Um, so to answer your questions, it is Repower Health is the so- how to go solar, and mygreendoctor.org is the greening you practice. That's one of my UK colleagues, but I think they you sign up and it's still that requires like a five minute meeting per week, and they look at each action that you can do that week. For example, wow. we're talking about like cutting down on paper like one week, and then you just have your five minute thing, then you do your energy audit maybe the next week and things like that. Um, and my obviously my I'll maybe put two in, but look up the declaration calling family doctors to act on planetary health um, with Wonka and the second would be as part of my learn more teach more do more call to action I would say if you want to learn more I would sign up for the Lancet planetary health journal Mm. just because it's very simple articles it's like one to two pages it's very robust it's research based and it's easy, it's not going to be a lot of time to read like a couple of things each week mm. that comes out and just to be thinking, oh, I didn't think about that before and now I'm learning more and that will be the first step to then teaching others. And the town planner talked about that at our yeah. Charles Wilmer yeah. and Lancet class. So there we go, yeah. we've got two nudges, so off we go and Wonderful. do. 
Thank you so much for coming along and speaking to us. It's very much appreciated. And there are our bells for our next session. What wonderful time.